1: I have you loud and clear. Hello, hello, hello. 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 Welcome.
2: welcome. <laughs> science. And
1: that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature or space,
2: space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe.
3: Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientists. I'm Phil Sansom and this is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. And this week it's Q&A time. Coming up on the show, how gravity actually works, prehistoric dental issues, and breaking down the spread of the coronavirus.
0: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk.
3: But before we get into the questions, let's meet our panel. We've got Nadia Radsman, a plant biologist, Chris Rogers, a physicist, Emma Pomeroy, bioarchaeologist, and Chris Smith, virologist. Let's start with Nadia. Hi, Nadia. Welcome. Hello. What have you brought in to show us today to start with?
2: I have a picture here of a part of a plant that I'm studying. This particular crop is actually a forgotten crop or underutilised or another term for it is Often crop, which is a crop that used to be consumed traditionally, in this case in Africa.
1: Would you like me to describe it for you? Yeah. Because this looks like a bunch of roots and some of the roots have got bulgy bits on them. So it's Uh almost like a root has swollen up and become very fat. How big are these things, Nadia?
2: A little bit bigger than an apple, I would say.
1: Oh, they're quite large then. Can I hazard a guess? What do you reckon, Emma, what do you reckon those are?
4: They look a little bit like... Sweet potato
2: or it something does. like yes. that? I was going yams. I
3: was going to say potato, yeah. Is, is it yam or potato or something?
2: So it is tuber. So sweet potatoes and, I guess, yams, they are modified roots. However, this particular plant is in a legume family. So it's a completely different plant family than potatoes or even sweet potatoes. And it's called African yambin. And this is
3: something that's been rediscovered and that you're looking to...
2: Yes. So because it's a forgotten crop, it's an orphan crop. It used to be consumed in in Africa, but now only the rural areas are still growing them. Poor farmers actually grow them for security crops. But now I'm studying them because nothing is known about this particular plant.
3: a, A rediscovered crop. Awesome. Well, let's move on because next to Nadia, we've got Chris Rogers, who's a particle physicist. Hi, Chris. Hi. So, actually, I'm an accelerator physicist. That means I design particle
5: (laughs) accelerators. There's a subtle difference. Well, what have you brought in to show us? So, in fact, what I've brought in is a little bit of a particle accelerator. So, I'll show it to the other guests. It looks like a small black foil. So, it's, it's about the size of a very small playing card. And it's actually one micron thick. So, about the same thickness as a bacterium. And it's actually how we get our beam into our particle accelerator. What's it made of? So it's made of carbon. So that's an extremely thin sheet of carbon. Extremely thin sheet of carbon. What does that actually do? So what we do, when we want to get our beam of particles into our accelerator, it's really hard. So imagine when we start off with our particles, we just start off with a gas bottle with hydrogen gas. And we put a spark across that hydrogen gas and it makes ions come out. So we ionise the gas. We accelerate that beam up and then we want to get it into a ring accelerator. If we put protons into that ring, then as the protons come back around to the start again, those protons would knock into each other and we wouldn't really be able to get the protons into the ring properly. What we do is we accelerate a special sort of ion called an H-ion. So instead of having a proton, we have a proton with two electrons attached. When those H-ions go through this really thin foil, it knocks those electrons off. And then we can bring those protons around in our
1: ring. So it's basically traffic management for particle accelerators.
3: That's exactly what it is. Let's definitely come back to this area. But for now, we've got Emma Pomeroy, third in our panel. Emma, welcome. What have you brought? You're a bioarchaeologist, yes?
4: Yes, I am, yes. And I've brought with me a cast, so a replica of a Neanderthal skull, an individual that we know as Shanidar 1. So it comes from the site of Shanidar Cave in Iraqi Kurdistan, which is where I'm currently um, conducting excavations. But this chap was actually found back in the 1950s.
3: That's amazing. It, It looks very, very much like a human skull.
4: Yeah. And actually, Neanderthals were pretty similar to us overall. If we look at the whole kind of span of the evolution of our species and our lineage, they're not so far away from us. They are sort of more robust in their brow ridges and in their face and the middle of their face projects a bit more. Critically, they didn't have a chin. So one of our modern human characteristics is that we have a really prominent chin and and Neanderthals didn't. But other than that, they look pretty similar to us. Can I just ask, when did they first appear? Well, that's a good question. Um, We see species that have some of their characteristics from about... 450,000 years ago so we think probably sort of about 300,000 years ago or, or perhaps a little more more recently so about the same time as modern humans did. Actually. So was there
1: a sort of split in the evolutionary tree then so there were our, our ancestors are both Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans like us and they, they sort of went their separate ways and there was a path that took them down the Neanderthal line and a path that became us.
4: Exactly so if you imagine sort of going back before our direct ancestor and before the direct ancestor of Neanderthals, our ancestors before that actually diverged. So some of them moved out into Europe and eventually evolved into Neanderthals and some of them stayed within Africa and eventually evolved into modern humans. And then after that, modern humans spread out into Europe and into Asia and Neanderthals eventually went mostly extinct apart from the little trace of DNA that many of us carry um, today.
3: Finally on our panel, we've got... What should be quite a familiar voice to many of you listeners, this is Chris Smith, a virologist at Cambridge. Chris, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. How does it feel to be on the other side of the desk?
1: I'm pretty nervous because we're going to do the quiz and I always take great delight in humiliating all the guests and you've made me a panellist. And <laughs> the, Actually, I, we should say the reason you've made me a panellist is because you know the world is in the grip of what we're trying not to call a pandemic. So we thought it might be quite interesting for people to have the opportunity to ask some questions about this new coronavirus that's circulating because I've, I've been doing quite a bit of that. <laughs> so I thought it, it, you know, it would uh, be very nice to help people if they want to ask anything about that.
3: Now's the time, actually. Let me just throw it to the other three of you. Do any of you have a, a perspective? or a question that you want to share or or ask chris emma
4: we hear lots of advice about things we should and shouldn't be doing to avoid catching coronavirus and spreading it so do face masks work do hand gels work
1: are you doing anything different
4: not really because i'm always careful about washing my hands and that kind of thing but should i be is
1: anyone in here doing anything different chris i had a Cold on Friday, so work from home. But maybe that means you guys need to stay away from me. <laughs> Do you like the way he's come in and turned up at the studio, sat down opposite all of us, shaking all our hands, and now he's telling us he's got a cold? I accidentally and drank from Chris's water glass half a second ago, so you know there uh, well, goes
5: that's me. That's we'll, we'll wait
1: for you to cough later on. Yeah. <laughs> that's it for you. The, the answer to the face mask question is actually probably just save your money. So the face masks that are not the ones used in hospital are not effective. And that's for two reasons. One is that people tend to use them wrong. They put them on, take them off, put them on, take them off, touch all over them. For instance, when they want to eat and drink things, and that transfers virus particles from the surfaces they've been touching probably to the inside of the mask when they touch it. So it automatically brings the virus close to their face where they're trying to keep it away from. The other is that they quite quickly get damp because of the water in your breath. And this means that the particles of virus can pass through the gaps in the mask quite efficiently and also the masks don't have a very good stringency there are big gaps between the fibers which to the something on the scale of a virus which is about one ten thousandth of a millimeter across that's like the, the tunnel under the thames it's absolutely huge so no obstacle whatsoever for for the virus they also don't tend to be warm properly people leave big gaps around the sides so when you breathe out or breathe in it just pulls air in from the room in into the sides. so that's probably uh-uh for masks. I would save your money. Go, I've, I've said to somebody, go and buy a beer instead, because A, you'll enjoy having that in your mouth more than the mask. It'll probably cost you less based on the amount of profiteering that's going on at the moment, and it will give you equivalent, if not more, protection from the virus. It will oh, also be more fun.
3: I, f- I feel good about my decision not to invest in any of this equipment. So thank you, Chris. Now, before we dive into the rest of the questions, and we will come back to many more coronavirus queries as well as others. For those of you at home, we've got a guess who quiz running throughout the show. Clues are coming up across the hour. So text or tweet us at Naked Scientists with your guesses. And here's your first clue. And it's a sound and it's sound that this creature makes. There we go. Did you catch that? We've got other clues coming later in the show. Any preliminary guesses? Any of you on the panel?
1: It sounds reptilian. Chris, is it an owl? It is not an owl.
4: I have absolutely no idea at this stage. It sounded like a, a slightly injured duck or something to me. So,
3: <laughs> I do love that guess. We'll give you more clues to put you all out of your misery. For now, let's move on to our first question. This is for uh, you, Nadia, and this one has come in from Mel.
4: What's happening to a plant if you overwater it? And why don't hydroponic farms
2: run into the same problem?
3: Let's start with the first part first. Watering plants too much. What's going
2: on? If you overwater a plant, what happens is that you would have this stagnant water around uh, the soil, right? So this would create a waterlogging effect. In all plant tissues, you need to have access to oxygen. So if you have a waterlogged plant, meaning that it couldn't access the oxygen anymore, this would create a low oxygen environment,
1: Well, how does hydroponics work then? Because you dangle the roots in water all the time, don't you? Yeah.
2: So there are two types of hydroponics. So in large scale hydroponics, what you have is the water is aerated, so you wouldn't have this low oxygen effects. Another one is a passive method where just a bit of the root actually touches the the water. So the plant is still happy.
3: But otherwise, it, it seems like it's actually drowning.
2: It it, it's is, it not is drowning. So yeah. So what happens is if it's low oxygen, you cannot take up water inside the plant. Well, I was going to say, <laughs>
1: what about plants that live in water?
2: So they have uh, special modifications in their roots. And the tissues are called aerenchyma, And they actually store well air to actually provide the oxygen to the plant. But do they
1: pump it there then? How, do this, how does the air get into those I'm bodies then? I'm
2: actually not sure about that. I know that if you
1: cut a water lily across, the stems have got a lot of hollow voids in the stems.
2: Yes, that is to actually provide the oxygen to the whole of the plant.
1: Wow. Well, thank you, Nadia. Let's move
3: on to a physics question for you, Chris Rogers. And this one's from Tony, comes in via our web form. He asks, how does gravity work? Can you sum this up, perhaps? So I have
5: bad news. And the bad news is that no one really knows. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. But I can tell you what we do know. So in the 17th century, Newton and Hooke together figured out the laws of gravity, and they also figured out some things about force. So when we have a force, if we push something which is really heavy, we accelerate it a little bit, and if we push something that's really light, we accelerate it a lot. That was one of Newton's famous laws of physics. And then the law of gravity says that a really heavy body will attract things more than a really light body. Now, Einstein, he's a clever chap, right? So he came along... I've I've heard that, yeah. He's got a good reputation. He, He does, doesn't he? So he came along at the beginning of the 20th century and what he said, he had a eureka moment where he actually thought, well, hang on, you've got these two different definitions of mass. One is that mass makes massive amounts of gravity, pulls things together really strongly. And the other one is that if you have a really massive object, it's really hard to push it. Well, what happens if we say that those two definitions of mass are actually the same. And so this is something called the equivalence principle. And so together with another principle which he had, the covariance principle, the principle that the laws of physics are the same no matter how quickly you're moving, he tied those together to make a new theory of gravity as a sort of curvature of space-time because you can't tell whether it's just an acceleration or whether you're near to
3: a gravitating body like a big planet or something like that. I don't quite understand how you get to curved space time. Well, it's an
5: interesting question. So if you imagine, for example, in a curved space time I
3: can't imagine that. I've no idea what that looks like. Oh yeah, you knew no you do. Nadia.
2: Is it the same as getting closer and closer to the black hole and everything is distorted? Is that something Well
5: so if you walk around the earth that's like walking around a curved space time. If you start at the equator And walk north, you end up at the North Pole, of course. It doesn't matter where on the equator you start, you will always end up at the North Pole. It's a curved space-time because parallel lines are no longer parallel.
1: People often use the analogy, Chris, of dropping a very heavy bowling ball on a trampoline, which distorts the trampoline down, bends the trampoline downwards. And if you were to roll a ball across the trampoline, it would roll down a hill. And they're saying that is a two-dimensional manifestation of of the curvature of space-time. If you imagine space being the fabric that's the surface of that trampoline, is that a reasonable approximation?
5: It's a lovely analogy actually. So it's exactly right and it does show how space-time can be curved. So curving space-time, is that what we're left with? So some theorists come along, they say that we have potentially a sort of subatomic particle called a graviton. Gravitons are really hard to see because gravity is a, what, what we think of as being a very weak force. But there's another more fundamental problem. If we put these gravitons into our theories, it turns out that the gravitons don't work in the theories, that you get infinite forces going around, which obviously
3: isn't physical. So until we do observe a graviton, it's only a theory. Gravitons, curved space time. What a complicated subject. Thank you, Chris. <laughs>
1: Hello, I'm Chris Barrow, bringing you a brand new podcast called Naked Gaming. This is where we look at gaming news. If you want to take it to uh, someone else's house, you have to buy an add-on into your subscription service oh, outside it's of your not property. Not as simple as you might think. Exactly it. that. Reviews.
0: So I'm at a spot on the map where horses are supposed to be, but I'm not having much luck at the moment.
1: And we also go back in time with Retro Revival.
4: I've got to a bit with some scarecrows, and it's actually quite tough, really. And this used to be quite an easy game that you just pick up and play.
1: Download Naked Gaming wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Today, we have a panel of experts taking on your science questions. So if there's anything you've always wanted to know for a show like this, give us a try and email chris at com or tweet at scientists. Still to come, solar storms, farming using fungi, and our panel goes head-to-head for the Naked Scientists quiz. But for now, here's the next part of our Guess Who game. First, we heard the noise that our creature makes. Take another listen. Now it's time for clue number two. And here's the clue. They're about... A thousand species in this creature's family, and they live all over the world, from the Americas to Africa, Australia, much of Asia, and areas of southern Europe. Any ideas?
4: Still stuck. <laughs> Alright, well mold that
3: one over and let's move on. Emma, over to you with this next question from Adam.
4: Were people tens of thousands of years ago really that different to us now? That's a great question. So if we're talking about modern humans, so our own species, we've been around for about 300,000 years. And actually, for much of that time, we were hunter gatherers. And so some of the characteristics that our ancestors would have had would be that they were much more active than us. So their bones were actually rather stronger than ours, because our bone strength depends on how active we are during our life. We imagine that people in the past were much shorter, right, and that we're we're taller today. But actually, that's probably not the case. Up until about 10,000 years ago, people were similar in height, actually, certainly in Europe to what we are today, partly because their nutrition was good, but they didn't have the disease burden that we have. And that really comes about with agriculture and, and settling down.
1: Did you see that paper, Emma, that came out of the US by looking at hundreds of years worth of medical records and found that our temperatures today are a bit lower?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating research. And I think it sort of fits in with the pattern. So maybe tens of thousands of years ago, people were not much shorter but if we go back a few hundred years people were substantially shorter and perhaps one of the things that was using up the energy that they had was fighting off infections and having this higher body temperature all the time so super interesting.
5: Have the changes been genetic or have they been environmental?
4: The answer to that is possibly a bit of both it's very hard so with things like stature it's very hard because it's determined by many different genes hundreds even. We find it hard to actually track how that's changed. But some recent work is suggesting that actually the genetics of height has changed. But things like height and the robusticity of our skeleton, so how strong our skeleton is, have a big environmental component to them as well.
3: Nadia?
2: If we are quite different than our ancestors, how relevant is the paleo diet?
4: That's a really interesting question. So I think from our perspective, as sort of evolutionary biologists, the paleo diet's not really something that ever existed. So human populations have lived all over the world with all kinds of different diets as hunter gatherers. And there's no one diet that we can say this is what we ought to be eating. Mm -hmm. So yeah, unfortunately, the paleo diet's not really a very a convincing argument.
3: Goodness okay a relief at least. Now Chris Smith we've had a coronavirus question come in from Lorna here in the UK she says she's about to start FEC-T chemo which is a combination of drugs for breast cancer and she's very concerned about losing her immune system with the spread of the coronavirus. Do
1: you think she should postpone and for
3: context she's 74 otherwise fit and
1: healthy? The answer to this is at the moment the risk of coronavirus in the population is low so the chances of you encountering it is low but you're right to be concerned because people who are at greater risk are those whose immune system doesn't work as well as someone who's got a fully functioning immune system and the way chemotherapy drugs work not exclusively but some of them is to switch off the way cells divide and that includes your immune system so it can cause the immune system to stop working quite as well now the risk placed to your health from breast cancer is almost certainly at the moment going to be higher than the risk posed by coronavirus infection. Now, what you could do, if you are concerned about this, is to do two things. If you need to go to clinic appointments, then everyone who's going to a clinic appointment should, if they have any symptoms whatsoever of any kind of infection, as a courtesy, should phone the clinic and warn them, because that means the clinic could see that person at the end of the list and they don't then sit in a waiting room full of people who don't have the infection and give it to them. So if we all do that, and we can all rely on people to do that, then it means that you're not at risk going to, say, clinic appointments. And the same goes for your general practice. At the same time, you may think, well... I don't feel comfortable going out into mass gatherings and things while I'm at higher risk. And the same would apply for any kind of viral infection, whether it's flu or just the common cold, because all of these things will provoke a more intense infection in a person who's taking drugs like these ones, which will suppress the immune system for a while. Under those circumstances, you might say, well, I'm going to just use a common sense approach and I'm going to keep myself away from people who obviously have symptoms. I'm going to warn my friends and family, look, if you've got some kind of symptoms or you're not feeling very well... Don't come over while you've got them. Don't come and see me. Wait until you're feeling better. And at the same time, don't go out to various places where there will be lots of people who you can't warn in advance. And then once you're over your course of chemotherapy and hopefully you're all better, everything should come back to normal and the risk will have passed and you'll be fine again.
3: Great stuff. Lorna, I hope that helps you out. And let's move on to plants again because Nadia Grant sent us a message saying, why do plants like warmer soil? And I hadn't heard of this because I'm not a gardener. Can you explain?
2: Warmer soil is important for two things. Uh, One is for growth and nutrient uptake. So low soil temperature would actually increase water viscosity and also reduces the root permeability to uh, uptake the water. This would then affect nutrient uptake because that is like part of the root to shoot transport through xylem that needs water. So this would pretty much affect the plant growth. Another one is for germination, but this is a little bit tricky because the seeds actually need to have low temperature period to break dormancy. And then when it's in warmer temperature, when you can actually tell from winter to spring, it starts to germinate in warmer soil.
3: So is it part that water and nutrients, those flow more easily and part that it just triggers the seed germination itself?
2: Yeah. Actually, the breaking of dormancy is because of the low temperature during wintertime. There are two different hormones that are regulating this. So one is abscisic acid, and this pretty much, it inhibits germination. And the other one is gibberellic acid, and this promotes germination. And during the low temperature in winter, you have increased gibberellic acid and reduce abscisic acid. And this break the dormancy, so then when spring comes, it can grow.
1: Chris Smith? Nadia, it's an extreme of temperature, but heat from fire and mm. the products of, of burning can yeah. also stimulate some seeds to grow, can't they? Because a yes. friend of mine in Australia actually used to discover what some of these molecules are by burning bits of tissue paper. Yeah. And they're getting the molecules out and showing they would make some seeds germinate. How does that work?
2: So actually, there is a particle from smoke called kerakin, And this is actually a plant hormone. So this actually comes from smoke, and this is also partly why some seeds will actually start to germinate after the fire.
1: Why would the seeds want to do that? Why is it beneficial to the plant to grow after a fire?
2: It's part of the cycle of uh, the forest itself. Some forests, like for example in Australia, actually need this particular cycle.
3: Nadia, thanks very much. Chris Rogers, we've had a physics one come in for you, and this one is from Katie.
2: What makes
4: up a solar storm?
3: Solar storm is a really interesting phenomenon. It's to do
5: with space weather. What we see on Earth is we see the magnetic field of the Earth actually changes and we see a really fantastic light display with the aurora. And what's going on is charged particles are flying from the sun towards the Earth and bashing into the Earth. So you get this charged plasma and that actually physically changes the Earth's magnetic field. What are those particles? Typically, they're protons or ions or electrons. So the sun is mostly made up of hydrogen with a bit of helium mixed in. And so typically you're getting ions from that hydrogen and helium and electrons associated with
3: those ions. What are the effects of this when you've got all these particles bashing into the Earth and its atmosphere? So
5: if it's a small solar storm, then you see a really bright aurora. So
3: the whole sky
5: lights up in the far north the really bright solar storm you can get amazing effects so there's a famous event in the 19th century called the Carrington event where just at the beginning of the invention of electricity they had telegraph wires the telegraph wires would actually spark out you get these really big sparks coming from the telegraph wires.
1: Can the earth gain mass that way and the reason for asking you Chris is that Steve Rampley has just pinged us an email and and said Is the mass of the Earth changing? Is one way that the Earth's mass can change from particles coming in from outer space? That's an interesting question. I don't
5: know whether the Earth's mass can change, but I do know that the Sun's mass can change. So the Sun is slowly losing mass as it fires off all of these high-energy particles. Those particles are flying out into the intergalactic medium, and, and so the Sun itself is
1: losing mass. Is it not also losing mass because... It's sending energy to us in the form of light and that light must have come from a process that consumed mass in the sun in order to produce the energy that it radiated at us in the first place. So That would also lose mass for that reason. Wouldn't
5: that, it? That's a really good point. So, of course, Einstein tells us, again Einstein, again that clever guy, he tells us that mass and energy are interchangeable. So when hydrogen fusion happens, hydrogen fuses into helium and the mass
3: of the helium is lower than the mass of the hydrogen. Chris, thank you. Moving on now, Emma, here's one for you. Did people have tooth problems thousands of years ago before any dentists ever existed?
4: Yeah, they did. I mean, if we think about the kind of tooth problems we have today, we associate them with eating too much sugar. So we get things like cavities and we have to get them filled. And while people didn't get them as much in the past before we had like refined sugar and foods like that they did still have these problems and we can see evidence of uh, tooth problems actually going right back to, to dinosaurs, but certainly in people and it depends what they ate in part. So even some hunter gatherers who we think are eating a very kind of healthy diet with not much sugar in it, in some populations where they actually relied more on sugary fruits, for example, they could have actually really high rates of cavities that were similar, in fact, to some modern populations today who do eat refined sugar.
3: And you sort of just have to deal with it.
4: Yeah. I mean, before dentists, it would have been a bit of a nightmare, I think. We do see that there were attempts, actually, to try and treat cavities in the teeth or or damage to the teeth. We've got examples that go back as far as kind of 14,000, 15,000 years And with those, they were using things like bitumen to try and fill holes and bits of hair and things like that. That sounds horribly painful. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. Um, There's one from about 6,000 years ago where they've tried to fill a crack in the tooth with beeswax. And that sounds a little bit nicer to me. But going back much further, we can actually see what we call interproximal grooves. So these are grooves between the teeth where individuals have actually been sticking say sticks or feathers or or something between the teeth presumably to try and relieve pain and they've been doing that so much it's actually gouged out a groove in the tooth
1: was it not just tooth picking they were trying to dislodge bits of meat and other muck from between their teeth
4: but it tends to be between particular pairs of teeth and that suggests that it's a chronic issue with those particular teeth Either that or it's just an idiosyncratic behaviour, so someone's individual kind of habits. But in some cases, there is one Neanderthal example where we can actually see that they had periodontitis, so inflammation of the gums, and they may well have been doing that to try and alleviate some of the pain and discomfort associated with... So you
1: could see the decay there alongside the evidence of the scraping.
4: Yeah so in that case what you can see is that actually the bone that holds the teeth in has started to recede back in response to that infection of the gums but we don't see that in all cases so maybe sometimes it was just people sitting and picking away at their teeth out of boredom or
3: something. All makes you grateful for dentists today Um, doesn't it? Absolutely
4: that's what I always (laughs) say to our students when we're doing practicals. (laughs) Thank thank you
3: Emma and and let's move on Chris Smith we've had a question in another coronavirus one this is from listener Paul If some infections
5: of the coronavirus are termed mild, does that mean those victims are young or middle-aged and cannot have developed
3: antibodies?
1: Is Paul right? It's certainly true that if we look at the data... And we're looking at data at the moment from largely China because obviously they're ahead of the world in the numbers of cases they've had and their collection of the data. This will probably become clearer as other countries, certainly Italy, for example, which is having a lot of coronavirus cases and the UK too. We're going to join the party and contribute our own data. At the moment, there are very few children there who have had this infection or have had severe outcomes from this infection or who have died from this infection the vast majority of the cases have been in older people the vast majority of the fatal cases have been in very old people and it looks like men are disproportionately likely to die compared with women although it's an equal opportunities virus it seems to infect both men and women equally now why is it then that the children appear to be not getting it well actually what i think is happening and we have to speculate because we don't know for sure yet this will become clearer but what I think is probably going on is that the children are not getting over symptoms so they're not getting tested so they're not registering in the data as having had this infection but they have had it they've had it in a very mild way and a bit similar is chickenpox if you think about it when we catch chickenpox as kids and in countries like the UK 90% of us have had chickenpox most of us catch it within the first few years of our lives and we'll get two or three spots, maybe maybe a few more than that, but we get a very mild infection. If you're unlucky enough to catch chicken pox when you're older you tend to get a much more severe infection and there are lots of viruses which do produce a more serious manifestation the older you get so it may well be that in this case it's doing the same sort of thing and that children are catching it they're getting very trivial symptoms and we're not regarding this as oh they've got this coronavirus they're not being tested so they're escaping from scrutiny and it's giving us the false impression that they're either not being infected or they're immune as far as we know No one is immune to this virus yet because it's new, so no one's seen it before, no one has immunity, and that's why it has the potential to spread across the entire world population. Chris, thank you. The
5: Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for
0: UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
4: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions.
3: Today, I'm joined by a panel of experts ready to take on your science questions. We've got Plants Pro Nadia Radsman, physics prodigy Chris Rogers, ancient bones aficionado Emma Pomeroy, and virtuoso virtuoso virologist Chris Smith. And we have a question for you at home. We've got a game of Guess Who running throughout the show. First, we heard the noise. Let's have a reminder. (sighs) And your third clue, it can range in size from as small as a ball bearing to as large as a dinner plate, and comes in almost every color. Panel, what do we think?
1: What was the second clue again?
3: The second clue: there are about a thousand species in the family, and it lives all over the world—America, Africa, Australia, much of Asia, and areas of southern Europe.
1: And it's the dinner plate size.
3: Anything from a dinner is it plate. Is the same to a dimensions
1: as a dinner plate?
3: Not necessarily.
1: Wow, you have any ideas about him? No, I feel more confused
2: rather
4: than any closer to knowing. It to makes honest. that
1: kind of noise. Nad- Nadia?
2: What part of the animal is making the noise? It's the mouth. It's the mouth. It's okay. the mouth. It it the the mouth. mouth.
3: <laughs> I think we should leave it there because we've got a final clue coming up in this particularly fiendish game of Guess Who later on the show. But for now, It's quiz time. It's the part of the show that you've all been waiting for. And our panelists are going to compete for the Prize Beyond Price. That's to be awarded Naked Scientists Big Brains of the Month. We're going to divide you into team one. That's Nadia and Chris Rogers. And you're going to be facing off against team two. That's you, Emma and Chris Smith. And I hope you're ready because it's time for round one. This round is called Count'em Up. Okay, team one. Here's question one. Which do you think there are more of? transistors in the world's largest supercomputer or bacteria in the average human body. So I can help you with
5: supercomputers because I know it's an exaflop machine. The two exaflops I think they have on the cards at the moment. Uh-huh. But I can't help with bacteria.
2: There are a lot of bacteria. I think the, a portion of like the weight of human body is like considerably consists of the bacteria mass. I would say bacteria, but I'm not really sure.
3: What do you think? I'm going to have to press you. I'm going to
5: let Nadia suffer.
2: I am not sure.
5: (laughs) Because if Nadia chooses, then I can blame her afterwards. And because
2: bacteria divides very, very fast, I would say. So are
3: you you saying bacteria?
2: Yeah, well, transistors cannot divide, right? (laughs) That
3: is incorrect. (laughs) Yes, the answer is transistors, because the most recent estimates for bacteria in the human body put the number of cells in there as about 30 trillion But the world's biggest supercomputer, Summit, it belongs to the U.S. Department of Energy, and it's about 74 trillion transistors, and that's the size of two basketball courts. Let's move over to team two. That's you, Emma, and Chris Smith. So question number two, which are there more of? Birds in the sky, I should say birds in the world, that's just a poetic way of saying it, or neurons in the average human brain?
1: Hmm. Wow, that's tough. 100 billion nerve cells in the average human brain.
4: I couldn't even begin to guess how many birds there are. But I would go for birds, but I'm not
1: quite sure Are there more than 100 billion birds on Earth? It's quite high. It is quite a lot. There's 7.7 billion humans.
4: True, but then birds can be much smaller, can't they? Yeah,
1: so are we saying that birds are about 10 times more numerous than humans? That seems pretty plausible, actually. It is
4: plausible, but I'm not sure if it's right. Are you you going to go with it? What should we go with, then? I don't know. Birds? Yeah, let's birds,
1: do birds.
3: Birds. That is correct.
1: Put it there. Look at that. We're off for a flying yes, start. Bump, I'm, I'm, my reputation's intact so far.
3: Good job. So the last estimate was actually two decades ago for number of birds. It put it between 200 and 400 billion. So big bounds because birds are very hard to estimate. Likely it's gone down, but the human brain is about 100 billion. On average, it's actually 86 billion. And the uh, estimates for decline... The biggest estimate we've got is 30% since 1970. So we, it, in Brain cells or uh, that, no, <laughs> the, that, the average
1: human intellect. Birds in the world.
3: <laughs> so we can be pretty sure that it hasn't gone down by enough to go below the number of neurons. So birds wins. All right, as we enter round two, team two, you're on one. Team one, you're on nil. So it's everything to play for as we move back to team one. And this round is called soft spot. So question one. Which animal, which lives in the bitter cold in the Andes Mountains, has what's considered to be the softest fur in the world? Do
5: you know any animals which live in the Andes? Um,
3: Chris Smith, go... you seem pretty keen. Do you know the answer? <laughs> I reckon I do, but it's not my go, is it? Is, so no, no, no. Is, do I
5: get a bonus is, point? Is, not is at all.
2: Llama? Is it
3: llama? Uh,
5: llama. yeah, bring oh, it on, no. llama.
2: I, I'm not sure, but...
3: Are you saying llama? I think llama's... I'll say llama. I'll take the fool this okay. time, though. yeah. I'm afraid that's not right. <laughs> Is it a chinchilla? It is indeed a chinchilla. A chinchilla. Yeah, well done, other Chris. I'm sorry, Nadia. I gave you the wrong Chris for this round. So my apologies. But here it is. This is a chinchilla. Here's a picture of one. Oh, it, it's they are ti- really fluffy. It's a tiny rodent. It's got... Each follicle has at least 50 tiny little hairs sprouting from it. And it's actually so soft and fluffy it can't bathe in water because it won't dry quickly enough and it'll get bacteria and fungus. So it actually has to bathe in dust. So very cool animal, that. Right. Team two, what mineral defines a number two on the Mohs hardness scale?
1: The lowest defining mm. mineral
3: that you can actually scratch with your fingernail. And as a hint, it's widely used as a fertilizer.
1: Well, talc is right at the bottom of the scale, and diamonds right at the top. Right. So, what's two? And you're saying the mineral can be scratched. This Mohs scale two can be scratched yep. with your fingernail?
3: Yeah. Number three, the mineral for that cannot. But number two is the, the highest one that can. And we use
4: it as, as a fertilizer. fertilizer yeah. Hmm. So that's
1: going to be something with phosphorus in it then.
4: I guess so, but...
1: Calcium phosphate?
4: I can't come up with a Calcium Calcium phosphate.
1: Calcium, let's go with calcium. calcium Well, that's bone though. That's quite odd. Yeah.
3: I'm going to need an answer or a pass. Sodium phosphate. Sodium phosphate. I'm afraid that's not correct. I'm sorry, the correct answer was actually very close in form. It's calcium sulfate dihydrate, which is gypsum. Yeah. If you've heard oh, of that yeah, one. Yeah, gypsum. Yeah, yeah. gypsum yeah. It's, it's also plaster made, of Paris, isn't it? Right. And it's Paris. in chalk and drywall <laughs> and all that stuff.
1: That's sort of what I was going for. I got sidetracked. Where does the fertilizer bit come from then? Because um, it is
3: it is used as a fertilizer. I mean, it's,
1: you know, gypsum that form. One <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, it's still 1-0 as we go into the third round. And this is a particularly fiendish round. So if you weren't ready, now is the time. This round is called Weird Weather. All right. So team number one. What I'm going to do for both of you is describe the conditions required for a particular weather phenomenon. And I want you to tell me what that phenomenon is. Okay, so what weather phenomenon occurs under the following conditions? First, a strong electric field in the atmosphere, usually from a thunderstorm or volcanic eruption. Two, that field gets concentrated around a curved object like the tip of a ship's mast. And three, the air around this area ionizes and turns to plasma. What weather phenomenon got to be lightning, right? Does it need to be a
5: specific sort of lightning? I can't possibly comment. So there's famous St. Elmo's fire which is a famous sort of lightning which is associated with ships masts.
2: I would go with Chris answer because yeah, it's something got to do with plasma and electricity charge.
3: What do you think? Is that your answer? St. Elmo's fire. That is correct. Yes, I possibly shouldn't have given that with the physicists on this team. So you've got the right Chris this time. But yes, St. Elmo's Fire. What it is, is a corona discharge around a pointed object. And it it works on airplane nose cones as well. And back in the day, it was considered a religious phenomenon. Actually, a good omen by many sailors. Team two is question number two. This is try and get your lead back. What weather phenomenon occurs under the following conditions? Number one, dark thunderclouds. Number two either a heavy downpour or a rainstorm with nearly uniform-sized droplets. And three, the sun breaks through those dark clouds and projects against them.
1: Oh, it's got to be a rainbow, right? I mean,
4: that's... but it seems too obvious, but it can only be.
1: It's got to be a rainbow. Is that your final answer?
4: Yeah, I think we say that.
1: I have to
3: say, that's half a point for that. So Um. you can get your correct answer jingle, I think. But the full correct answer would have been a triple or tertiary rainbow, which is quite a rare weather phenomenon. So I haven't made it easy for you. But what that is, is actually a rainbow that's projected onto the side of the sky where the sun already is. And so you need those dark clouds next to the sun. Otherwise, you just can't see it. There's not enough contrast. But it does exist. There's several that have been cited. It's very, very cool. So do we get half a
1: mark? For so you we get then? half
3: a mark? And that puts you in the so lead. So that gives us Big Brain
1: of the Week award then. <laughs> Team
3: two, you are Big Brains of the Week.
4: <laughs> do we get a round of applause? <laughs> Come on. Just about scraped to win. Oh, that, that was well lucky. Reputation intact.
3: <laughs> right. Now moving back to the questions... Here's one for you, Nadia, and this comes from user Hayseed on our forum. He's asking about underground fungal relationships with plants. He says they seem to be key to plants thriving. What are they, and could they be a new model for farming?
2: This particular fungus, we call it Arbuscular mycorrhiza fungus. Actually, a lot of plants can associate with this fungus more than 80% of land plants could have mutualistic symbiosis with this fungus. So it's a win-win situation. So what happens is that if there is low phosphate in the soil, the plants would then engage in this mutualistic symbiosis with the fungus. And because the fungus has this extensive network of mycelium in the soil, it can actually forage the soil for more phosphate and then transfer it to the plant. What's a mycelium? So mycelium is this thread-like extension of the fungus and it finds where the phosphate patches that the plants couldn't find and then transfer it to the plant and then in return the plant would actually give the carbon nutrient in forms of lipids back to the fungus.
3: Why can't plants do that themselves though, find that particular phosphates?
2: Ah, so Sometimes there is this depletion zone around the root. This is because it will take up a lot of the phosphate around it. But then there's also this particular thing where phosphate usually actually just stay in the topsoil. So obviously because the root is going down, it cannot access something that's really high up, right? So with the fungus, it can actually help that.
3: They're almost acting like root extensions then, trying to seek out phosphates that the plant can't get to.
2: exactly, yeah. So mycorrhizal fungus, uh, this association, was actually back 400 million years ago. It's a very ancient symbiosis, and this is even before the land plants actually acquired roots. So it actually helped the plants to gain the nutrients that it needs.
1: Chris Smith, did you have a question there? No, I was just going to say, I like your, your root essential. I began to think about hair extensions, and it's like this, <laughs> it is the plant equivalent of hair extensions. We don't use just... fungi for no, a hair extensions. It, extension it enormously increases the collecting area of the plant. And the amazing thing about all this, because I first encountered this about 20 years ago, I began to read about it, and it's this whole barter economy, because the fungus and the plant are trading. I'll give you yes. some nutrient in return for some other, mm-hmm. but actually if the fungus tries to rip off the tree... Then the tree can actually decide it's not going to trade with that fungus anymore, and yeah. they can be stingy, can't they? So it's a really clever sort of relationship.
2: Yes, a lot of uh, symbioses, I um, like that. They're very, quite stingy. <laughs>
3: what about the second part of this question, though? Are these fungal relationships something that's important for farming?
2: So it would clearly help the farming system in a way that will make it more sustainable. Because if we think of this fungus helping the plant to acquire more phosphate when there's low phosphate around, you can have reduced usage of phosphate fertilizers. And also, what's interesting is that a couple of studies also shown that having this fungus around would increase the drought tolerance of this plant and it also increase the resistance to diseases.
3: Is this something that farmers are currently taking into account?
2: Not exactly, because if we think of, there are also pathogenic fungus around.
3: What does that mean, pathogenic?
2: Induce diseases to plants.
3: So bad fungus, as yes, opposed to the that's good fungus. Yes, ba- bad fungus. I see. And the
2: Arboroskely mycorrhiza is the good guys. So obviously, to deter this bad fungus, the farmers would spray a lot of the crops with fungicide. And if it's a broad spectrum fungicide, what happens is that it will also kill the good guys in the soil. So to prevent that from happening, what farmers could do is actually to use very specific fungicide for a particular pathogenic fungus, the bad guy, that is affecting the plant, but only in the leaves. And so the good guys, the good fungus could thrive in the soil.
1: Nadia, given how important these fungi are, is there any way that a plant has got to make sure that its offspring get the same beneficial fungus?
2: Right, not exactly. So as I've mentioned before, this particular fungus is called arbuscular mycorrhizal fungus. There is another type of fungus, which is called endomycorrhizal fungi. It actually associates with some orchids. So with that, this is very interesting because some orchids would actually need a particular fungus for it to germinate. So what happens is that the seed of the orchid needs to be associated with a very specific fungus and then it would eat up the fungus for it to then grow and germinate.
3: A fungus specifically for that one plant. I guess this must be a whole world of of different possible relationships. Yeah, so
2: that's why some orchids cannot be grown outside of its habitat because it needs that fungus to grow.
3: Chris Rogers? I've heard before that different
5: plants can talk through fungi, that they can oh, pass yeah. chemicals between different plants. Is that true?
2: It is, yeah. So it's pretty much a hidden network of massive threats under the soil, right? And the way they knew about this is that a particular tree was fed with radioactive isotope of carbon. It doesn't occur in nature, so we can trace this, right? And they could actually trace it very, very far away from that one particular tree. So it means that there must be some sort of communication, the network under the soil, the hidden network, through the fungus.
1: So the interpretation is that the the radioactive carbon goes into tree number one, let's call it. It then trades with this fungus that's around its roots, which then carts off that particular chemical and then delivers it or deposits it or trades it with another tree miles away, and that's how the radioactivity gets spread.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly.
1: Nadia, thank you so much.
3: This week, we're putting your science questions to our panel of people. Nadia Radsman, Chris Rogers, Emma Pomeroy and Chris Smith. But before we get on to more questions, it's now time for the fourth and final clue for Guess Who. First, we heard a noise. Let's have a reminder of that. (laughs) Then we heard that there are about a thousand species in the family living all over the world. Then we heard they can range in size from ball bearing to as large as a dinner plate and come in almost every colour. And our final clue, they mainly eat large insects, although they've been known to chow down on lizards, mice, bats, birds, and even snakes. What do we think? Anyone at home? Anyone in the studio? Does the name of it begin with an M? It does not. Hmm. Chris Rogers? Is it a spider? It is perhaps a spider. I'll need more than that. Tarantula. It could well be a tarantula. You've got it. Well done, Chris. What is it then? That's amazing. Yeah, it's tarantulas. It's the family. They live all over the but world. that
1: noise, what, what is oh, that? Oh, that's,
3: that's its mouth parts, moving and hissing. They hiss when they get into the aggressive pose. It's really incredible. My goodness. There you go. So well done, Chris. Do I get an extra point in the quiz? <laughs> <laughs> I think he deserves one. I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> I think so. I wonder if it's too late to retroactively change the result. Probably is, but congratulations to you. Very well done. Do you (laughs) want
1: to let's
3: put a smile on Chris's face? Well, let's move on with the questions. Chris Smith, we've got a question for you on COVID-19. Listener Ken asks, how can elderly people be better protected in our communities where the virus has not yet become established? Do we need much greater preventative efforts by limiting mass attendance events, like uh, Ken's local Cheltenham Festival here in the UK?
1: Uh, Right, first of all, Are elderly people at greater risk? And the answer is that they're at greater risk of complications from this. They're not at greater risk of catching it than anybody else. Everyone's at risk of catching it because no one has immunity. And depending upon how sociable you want to be, your risk is going to go up. But Ken's
3: point is that these are the people that are most concerned. These are the people that are most vulnerable.
1: Yeah. And so what one has to consider is I know... What my risk is, therefore, if I'm older, I'm at a higher risk. If I'm younger, I'm at a lower risk. And I can make a judgment about whether or not I want to do anything about that. If I decide I want to do something about that, there are some simple practical things you can do. If you live on your own or you know, just with a partner, then it may be possible to adjust your lifestyle. I was talking to one person the other day who said that what she and her husband have taken to doing, because he's at higher risk, is that they will go and do their weekly shop in the evening when they know the shop has fewer people in it. So they're going to bump into fewer members of the public who might be incubating this. That's one thing. Two, you can tell your relatives and your friends to please let you know that they've got a cold or a cough or something before they come over. And in that way, you can choose whether or not you want to socialise with people who might be able to infect you with something. And if everyone begins to use their common sense like this, don't go and see each other. Don't take the grandchildren over when you've got some symptoms, because it's a fact that with any kind of infectious disease, the more symptomatic you are, the more infectious you are.
3: But is there not any argument for containment by limiting these huge events so that it doesn't get into, for example, the town of Cheltenham where Ken might live?
1: There is an argument for doing that and that's what Italy are trying to do as a huge experiment at the moment. Their approach has been to say we're going to shut schools for 10 days, we're going to shut universities for 10 days. They've chosen those groups because A, they've got large groups of individuals who are young individuals who fall into this category of potentially getting infected but not actually knowing they potentially are infected with this virus and therefore being able to pass it on to other people. Those children also amount to a large group who could pass it into their parents who could take it into the workplace, for example. So, by reducing activity in those areas of society, they're doing the experiment to see right, what's that going to do to the spread of this thing? Is it going to slow it down? At the same time, they're effectively putting a huge chunk of their country into quarantine, again, to stop movements and slow down the rate at which this trickles across the population because there's no going back now there's no way we're going to stop this we all accept that it is going to spread and it's going to basically spread to everybody eventually but it's the rate at which it does that that matters and if you can slow down the rate at which it's going across a country and through a population you can smooth out the spikes because the danger here is if you get lots of people who get infected all at once the small minority that will have a problem If there are not healthcare services available because there are so many of them coming all at once, there's a danger that you then get a knock-on effect on the health service. And then you also get a secondary knock-on effect because, say, if the ambulances are not available for someone with a heart attack because they're dealing with all these people with, say, a coronavirus infection, then people start dying of heart attacks. So that's what people are trying to do by doing these sorts of manoeuvres. But we've never been in this position, so we just don't know. So it's very hard to say this is the way to deal with this because at the moment we're learning.
3: So if it were up to you, what would you say? Keep the Cheltenham Festival, maybe try and call it off or too early to say?
1: For now, too early to say because we don't know what the numbers are going to be. We don't know what the level of uh, circulation in the population is at the moment or henceforth. And therefore, because we don't know the trajectory, we don't know how many of these measures we're going to have to resort to, to try and slow this thing down. Chris Rogers? Is there a risk that the negative effects of, for example, quarantining a huge number of people can
5: actually cause significant harm as well? Yeah,
1: because if you've got, say, an older person who's dependent on a group of people caring for them, and those people then eschew that care provision because they're worried about either infecting the older person or getting infected themselves by going out, getting shopping and so on, that other person's going to have a care problem and that could have knock-on consequences. Things may be missed, that person may may fall over and hurt themselves and not be able to get up and they may go longer with, before someone comes and helps them. So there will almost certainly be consequences in that respect. And then there's the whole psychological aspect of this. If you talk to people who were on the boat at Diamond Princess in Yokohama, they were going stir-crazy. I mean, it puts a whole new spin on the phrase cabin fever, I know, because you've got these people with coronavirus combined to barracks for two weeks, but they were finding it very tough indeed to be stuck in something resembling their wardrobe some of those cabins didn't even have a window for two weeks and it it sounds like a holiday but believe me talking to those people they said it absolutely wasn't and i think that's a very real prospect that we're also going to get social isolation you're going to get people with with um mental illness for example who rely on contact with other people to to help them stay well and and stay ahead of say addictive problems and things like that it could have all kinds of far-reaching consequences so we do have to be proportionate and sensible and not unleash the floodgates too quickly on these measures because there is a danger then people get complacent people don't want to comply anymore because they're bored and then it comes roaring back so that's what we want to try and avoid. Chris Smith thanks very
3: much. Let's finish the show now by going back in time with a question for you Emma and this is from
4: Megan. Why did Neanderthals go extinct? Well it's a tricky one actually it's something that um, we've been debating for decades and I still don't think we have a clear answer. If we go back sort of a number of decades, it was assumed that Neanderthals were not as intelligent as modern humans. And so it's rather coincidental, perhaps, that Neanderthals go extinct just about the time that modern humans spread and become successful in Europe. So some people have argued, well, perhaps they just weren't as good as catching animals and they weren't as flexible in the kind of plants they could eat. However, the evidence that we're getting now is that that gap in sort of cognitive ability, so mental capacity, was not so great as we used to assume. We've got evidence for things like decoration of the body in Neanderthals, symbolic things that signal that higher level of intelligence. So other ideas that people have put forward and these have been somewhat revolutionised actually by studies of genetics and ancient DNA, we can see that among the Neanderthals, especially those just before they go extinct around 40,000 years ago, their genetic diversity is really low. So we can look at Neanderthals from across their range and there's not much variation between them. And that's really important because we know that once species start to lose their genetic diversity, they become very susceptible both to inherited diseases, but also infectious diseases. So it's possible that that loss of diversity could actually have have led to their extinction.
3: What would that have come from, though?
4: That's sort of another tricky question.
3: Because you get that from inbreeding. That's the main one, correct?
4: Yes, exactly. Inbreeding. And what we think must have been happening was that their population levels were very or relatively low compared to modern humans. Now why that is again is a difficult question to answer. It could be because perhaps their rate of reproduction and their the rate of population growth was lower. Perhaps it's been suggested that as the climate fluctuated over sort of the centuries and millennia their preferred habitats kind of became more common, so the population could spread out. But then in the intervening periods, they got restricted to really small areas and many died out. So over time, that variability got less and less.
3: Is it possible that it was less passive aggression from us and more, you know, actual aggression?
4: Well, that's a possibility. Because we're not
3: the nicest.
4: We can be very compassionate and nice, but we can do nasty things to each other as well. And there are arguments that you know we were involved in extinction of Neanderthals maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. The evidence for an intentional involvement is pretty thin on the ground. We have one Neanderthal from a site called Shanidar Cave in Iraqi Kurdistan from around the time that Neanderthals were going extinct and he has an injury to one of his ribs that comes from a projectile. So traditionally those are associated with our own species, modern humans, as having that ability to make this more kind of advanced technology. So some people have said, perhaps that's one example of modern humans killing off Neanderthals.
3: And the the earliest episode of CSI, probably to date.
4: Well, it could be. Another less intentional way that we might have helped to kill off Neanderthals is actually through the spread of disease. So it's been suggested that modern humans who we evolved in Africa and then we spread out into Europe where Neanderthals were. And probably what we brought with us was a whole load of new diseases that the Neanderthals had never encountered before. So they didn't have the evolved immunity to actually be able to um, fight off those diseases. Now... In some cases, you know, new diseases come or introduce and they spread. And they can be serious, like with coronavirus at the moment. But the rate of mortality is not necessarily huge. But we know of other examples. For example, when Europeans first went to the Americas and took with them smallpox, that had a devastating effect on the native populations there because they'd never been exposed. They had no immune response that had evolved. And the the genes that you need to be able to fight that off. So maybe we're seeing a a similar scenario with Neanderthals and modern humans, especially if the Neanderthals were already rather inbred and perhaps lacking the genetic diversity that would have given them strong immunity.
3: Folks, we must leave it there. Thank you so much for listening and for sending in your questions. And thanks to our panel, Nadia Radsman, Chris Rogers, Emma Pomeroy and Chris Smith. Do join us next time when we're exploring the secrets behind sustainable cities of the future, from underground farms to a virtual version of the City of London. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Phil Sansom, and until next time, goodbye!